Um, we have this morning with us a very gifted, a wonderful brother named Dr. Ligon Duncan. And we're just going to dive right in. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to ask him some questions. We're going to have a bit of a Q&A here. And we're going to work through various aspects of culture and the church and the Christian life. And then, Lord willing, we'll leave a little bit of time in the end for you all to ask some questions. So maybe be thinking about a question that you might want to ask uh, Ligon. And just think of a question you think might not merely be a benefit to you, but maybe a benefit to others, too, who have come this morning. So with that, now, Ligon, I think of you as a tried and true Presbyterian. So I think of your, I think you said your sort of, your father was an eighth generation ruling Southern Presbyterian elder. To go any further back, you're effectively in Scotland. And, uh, and yet I learned last night that you're a Baptist and your mama was a Baptist. So you're going to have to explain some of this to us. Inquiring Baptist minds want to know this morning. Uh, my mother is a graduate of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky. She went and did a church music degree after studying at the State Baptist Institution of Tennessee, Carson Newman College. Uh, she did a church music degree. She worked um, on uh, in Baptist churches in North Carolina, Tennessee, and Georgia. And um, in, the, in the 1950s, she was singing for the Georgia State Baptist Convention and got to know Dupree Rame, who was the chairman of the Fine Arts Division at Furman University, who was a fine, godly man and an amazing musician. And uh, they got to be friends that week during the uh, State Baptist Convention. And the pastor that she had gone to work with at First Baptist Church in Canton, Georgia, uh, retired after she had been there for six months. She had really gone to that church because she had such high regard for him and for his ministry. He retired after she had been there for six months. And in those days, in many large Southern Baptist churches, the practice was if the senior minister resigned, everybody on the staff resigned. And so there was mom, a, a single woman at First Baptist Church in Canton, Georgia, and Dupree Rame at the Georgia Baptist Convention said, would you consider coming and teaching at Furman University. And so she went to the music faculty at Furman. Some mutual friends set my mom and dad up on a blind date, and eventually he stole her away into Presbyterianism. But uh, it took a while. It took a while. So I, I was, um, they got married in uh, 1958. I was born in 1960. Um, I would probably be a Baptist today um, had the church where she was serving had a, a, a Bible-believing pastor, but their pastor was what we would anachronistically call a moderate. And my my father knew that. He knew that the gospel was not being preached in the pulpit, and so he said, there's no way we're joining that church. And so she eventually joined. Now, actually, the, the church where he was attending, the Presbyterian church where he was attending, um, had an, a, a, a man that wasn't preaching the gospel either. But when that man left... A man, an evangelical man came to the pulpit. And when mother heard him preach, she said, okay, that man's preaching the gospel. But she had grown up under good, solid, you know, if you'll remember in the 1950s, there was such a strong training union emphasis in the Southern Baptist churches. There was a strong emphasis on the preaching of the word. She had, she had grown up under great ministry and she recognized, okay, this man's preaching the gospel. And that, got her comfortable enough to join a Presbyterian church, even though she was still not convinced about baptism. That took a long time before we drew her into that error. So, yeah. There's always heaven for you. Yeah, that's right. Okay. (laughs) Just tell us briefly about your family. 
Uh, I'm married to Anne. Uh, my wife is from Columbia, South Carolina. She is a seminary uh, graduate. She went to Gordon-Conwell Seminary and at Reformed Theological Seminary. She did a marriage and family therapy degree, and I intercepted her there and said I'd help her with her homework. And um, and we have two children, a daughter, Sarah Kennedy, who has just started university uh, this month, and a son, Jennings, who's in 10th grade, a 15-year-old. Now, many of, uh, if you know of, of Ligon's work, you may know him as a scholar. Uh, he's written a number of books. So I just wanted to ask you, as one who reads a lot um, and who's been influenced quite a bit by authors from the past and even present, any books that have been especially instrumental in your Christian life that you would look out to folks who are here and say, hey, listen, if you haven't read this, you, you need to read your Bible, and the next thing you read is read this book. Yeah. You, don't, you don't have enough time for me to talk <laughs> about books. Talking with me about books is like talking with Mark about books. So uh, we'd, we'd, we'd be here a long time. But just a few that I'd mention. Um, Thomas Brooks wrote a little book called Precious Remedies Against Satan's Devices, which I, I've forgotten how many times I've read and reread that book. My original paperback copy has fallen apart twice, and I've had it re-glued black, back twice, and it's fallen apart again. Um, so Thomas Brooks' Precious Remedies Against Satan's Devices. And the, 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 the book, we would call it spiritual warfare today, and really the Puritans knew more about spiritual warfare than any modern evangelicals that talk about that. But the, the book talks about, first of all, how Satan tempts us. What what are the ways that Satan tempts us? And it talks about how does Satan discourage us or how does Satan get us to doubt our salvation, to lose our assurance. And so he may give seven ways that Satan tempts us into sin. And then for each of those seven ways, he'll give you nine biblical remedies. And he'll, he'll just walk you through the, 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 the weaponry that the Holy Spirit has given you to fight back against Satan and his devices, his devices to discourage you, his devices to make you doubt, his devices to tempt you into sin. And that, that book is just so personally helpful to me at so many levels I can't even begin to describe. I really think it's the book that has influenced my preaching more than any other because I learned how to apply Bible truth by watching Brooks do it. And, and he is the master of the one-liner. He's also very funny. There are places in that book where you will double over. It is so funny. He's not even trying to be funny, and he's funny. And um, so it's a, it's a wonderful book. I, this year, The Banner of Truth surprised Ian and Jean Murray with a volume in their honor called... Banner of Truth is the yeah, publisher. the publisher. And, um, and it's called You Must Read. And Mark contributed to it. Al Mohler contributed to it. All of these were friends of Ian and Jean Murray. Ian Murray was the publisher and the, and the head editor of the Banner of Truth uh, for many, many years. And we all wrote on books that we loved. And so, naturally, Mark wrote on Sibs. And Al Mohler wrote on C.H. Spurgeon. And I, I wrote on Thomas Brooks. And so I've got an article in that volume. So if that, by the way, that's a great book if you want to get a, to, to sort of savor a few different authors in really short chapters. It's just called You Must Read. But Thomas Brooks is one that's just been a huge influence on me. Um, another is, is Matthew Henry. Uh, Matthew Henry was a nonconformist minister in England. Explain what that means. Um, in 1662, um, 
every minister in the Church of England who refused to sign the oath of conformity that had been imposed by the monarch and by the parliament, saying that pastors had to conform to all of the practices of the Church of England or lose their ordination. 2,000 ministers were kicked out of their churches in, in England. Um, some of them became Baptists, some of them became Congregationalists, some of them became Presbyterians. Uh, it was really the beginning of what I would call modern evangelicalism. Um, he was the son of one of those ministers that got kicked out, and they called them all nonconformists because they didn't go along with the, with the rules of the Church of England. And he uh, became a very famous Bible commentator. Some of you may have read Matthew Henry's commentary on the Bible. There's a six-volume set of just Bible expositions that he wrote over the years. Uh, George Whitfield wrote, read those Bible commentaries to prepare for his preaching. He read through that six-volume set of Matthew Henry four times on his knees. Um, so I love Matthew Henry as a commentator, but maybe the most influential book on me that Matthew Henry wrote was a little book called A Method for Prayer Using Scripture Expressions. In 1712, after he had pastored for 25 years, he, he had congregation members that wanted to have help in knowing how to pray. So he sat down at his kitchen table and he took the outline of the Westminster Directory outline for prayer and he just started writing down the first scripture reference that came to mind. And 300 pages later and 15,000 scripture references later, off the top of his head, he had written a method, a method for prayer. I mean, the man, you know, he used to say John Bunyan prick him and he'd bleed Bible. Well, Matthew Henry prick him and he'd bleed Bible. And that book helped me more than any other book that wasn't the Bible learn how to pray the Bible. And um, so that book was just huge for and me. And the title, title of it again? It's Normally today it gets published under A Method for Prayer. But like all you know, Puritan and nonconformist titles, they were really long. It was A Method for Prayer Using Scripture Expressions with, with Attendant Directions for Beginning, Spending, and Ending the Day with God or something <laughs> like that. But A Method for Prayer is all you need to know, Matthew Henry. And can you pick these up on Amazon? Oh, you yeah, go, you okay. get them on Amazon. Okay. You can, in fact, if you go to MatthewHenry.org, MatthewHenry.org, you can get the book for free online. You can download it to your iPad or whatever you, your tablet is. And you can get portions of Scripture prayers emailed to you for free every day. Hmm. Hmm. So, That's great. Yeah. Now, you have written a number of books. You've written more books than some of us will read in a lifetime. Uh, one of them that I was curious, I saw the title. I want you to tell us about it. And the title is, Does Grace Grow Best in Winter? Can you tell us about that yeah. book? What, what led you to write it? Uh, some of you may have heard other books with similar titles. That phrase, um, grace grows best in winter, actually comes from Samuel Rutherford, who was a Scottish pastor in the 1600s, who suffered a great deal of trials personally and ministered to people in a congregation who suffered many, many trials, losing children, uh, losing spouses, facing real great adversity. And he made the comment once that it, it was his observation that God causes grace in our lives to, to grow best in winter when we're going through adversity. That's what he meant. 
So at, in my church, we had gone through an extraordinary season of trials um, one particular year. We had had four young people in our congregation take their own lives. So I had preached four funerals for children who had grown up in our church, some of them teenagers, some of them in their early college years who had taken their own lives. Um, in, in my congregation, in, in my, amongst my elders, I had had seven of my elders' wives die. Um, we, we had just had a season of unique trials. And Donna Dobbs, who works with us in Christian education, had come to me and she said, Ligon, I wonder whether we ought to do a series of Thursday luncheons to help people in our congregation process all that they've been going through from a biblical standpoint, really help them think about this from the standpoint of what the Bible says to us, what, what God says to us in his grace in these seasons. And I said, Donna, that's a, it's a great idea. And so Donna made all the arrangements for it, and it ended up, news leaked out. We really intended it for our congregation. News leaked out what we were going to be doing, and people from all over the city showed up. And so it, it actually turned into an evangelistic opportunity as well as uh, just coming alongside of hurting people and ministering to them. Well, we had standing room only crowds in our fellowship hall four weeks in a row. And at the end of that time, um, a number of people came to Donna and said, "We Ligon needs to put that in print. And I said, Donna, I don't have time to do that. So it was not unlike Paul Alexander taking Mark's stuff from the deliberate church. What, what Nick, Nick Reed, you'll see on the book, Nick Reed, my assistant, took my manuscript and took the transcripts and put them together and put them in front of me on my desk. You know, I looked down and I said, oh, that's me. Um, but Nick really put it together. And so we, we published it uh, to, just to help people understand how God works in afflictions, what lessons we learn in afflictions, um, how to endure afflictions, how to profit from afflictions. That's the whole idea. And so I just took that phrase and, and asked the question, does grace grow best in winter? Question mark. And, and the answer is yes. Now, I've been particularly helped by a volume you did, Give Praise to God. Uh, which is sort of on the topic of worship. Now, when we hear that word worship so often, we instinctively first think music. Is that where right. we should go? No. <laughs> you want no. to talk to us about that? Yeah, I mean, worship means giving unto the Lord the glory due his name. And we do that in two primary ways. We worship him in all of life by living the whole of life unto him for his glory. So, you know, when the when the sailors on the ship that Jonah was fleeing on, ask him, who are you and where do you come from? He said, I am Jonah, and I worship the God who made heaven and earth. Now, what he meant by that was not that on Friday nights he went to the synagogue and attended a service. He meant that his job in life was to give glory to God. Now, ironically, he was running from doing that when he answered the question. So one of the ways we worship is we don't do what Jonah did. We worship God in all of life. We, we really live unto him. But the other way we do that is, a, is as a gathered people. And that's, that's always been the way it is. In the Old Testament and the New Testament, it's really important for the people of God to gather weekly 
deliberately to focus on him. Now, part of that is singing. That's true. The Bible just commands that. But we worship God as much when we pray, when we hear the word of God read, when we participate in the Lord's Supper, or when we listen to a sermon. Then we do. In fact, the Puritans thought that the sermon was the culmination and climax of worship because they taught that it is the place where the Word of God delivers through the preacher a message to your souls about God, grace, and godliness, and you have a word-mediated encounter with the living God. And, and therefore, they saw that as the culmination of the human experience of the worship of God. Is that one of the reasons why in a lot of Protestant churches you'll find the pulpit at the center yeah. and the table is off to the side, the table or for, below. Yeah. yeah, or below yeah. for the Lord's Supper to make the point that grace comes through the word. Yeah. So it remains center. Was you, you go to a Roman Catholic church, the pulpit will be the off, pulpit's to the side. off to the side, but it's actually the elements at the center because in Catholicism, grace comes through the sacrament. And that's great. That's great symbolism to remember. The other thing is you will notice a Protestant minister will not stand in front of the table between you and the elements because he's not your priest and mediator. Jesus is. All he's doing is distributing Jesus' means of grace uh, to you. And so the pulpit will be in the center, but the pastor will be in the background when you, ta- you know, take the elements of the Lord's Supper because he's not your priest and mediator, Jesus is. Yeah. Amen. I know when I first became a Christian, when I would come on Sunday morning, I would think, okay, the leadership must have gotten together sometime the, during the week and thought, hey, what should we do for Sunday? You know, they sort of came to a blank whiteboard and thought, you know, maybe we'll sing a few songs, maybe we'll do a skit. Yeah. You know, we had some interpretive dance. We had lots of things. Yeah. And occasionally, instead of hearing a message, you get a bunch of clips sure. from a film or something. Um, but you would suggest, I think, that actually we don't come as Christians to a blank whiteboard right. when we come on Sunday morning, but actually there's some things that have been laid out for us yeah and things that should govern the way we gather together, that's related to sort of... Yeah, can you just talk to us about that? And and that's what that book is about. The book Give Praise to God was a volume that was written in honor of James Montgomery Boyce. Jim Boyce was one of the finest, godliest ministers of the late 20th century. He was the pastor of the 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia. He was the chairman of the International Council on Biblical Inerrancy. He's just a wonderful man, and he loved the gathered worship of the people of God. And so we thought to honor him, there'd be no better topic to write on than than worship. And so Mark Dever contributed, many, many folks that you will know, Don Whitney from Southern Seminary uh, contributed, and we just wrote about the different aspects of worship. Um, one of the things that Baptist Presbyterians and Congregationalists share is we all three, even though we disagree on certain points, we all actually believe that the Bible not only tells us the way of salvation, and the Bible not only tells us how to live the Christian life, the Bible also actually tells us what we're supposed to do as a family when we're together as the church. And that means both in our mission and in our gathered worship. And so Baptist, Presbyterians, Congregationalists have always looked at the Bible and said, what does the Bible tell us we ought to do in gathered worship? And I think you can really boil it down to five things. We sing the Bible, read the Bible, pray the Bible, preach the Bible, and see the Bible. Now, let me, yeah, yeah. Uh, Augustine called baptism and the Lord's Supper visible words. They are, they are uh, rituals or rites or symbols 
that depict a promise from God to us in his word. So that everything that we're doing in worship is actually Bible-derived and Bible-driven. So we sing the Bible, that is, we sing biblical. That doesn't mean we can only use phrases from Scripture, but everything we sing ought to be biblical. It ought to be in accord with Scripture. We pray the Bible. That Again, it doesn't mean we only use prayers out of the Psalms or out of the Apostle Paul, but all that we pray in the worship service is in accord with Scripture. We preach the Bible. The, the Word of God is expounded to the people of God. We read the Bible and we see the Bible. We have baptism in the Lord's Supper in which the biblical promises are visibly displayed to our eyes. And um, and that's what we do in worship. If you look in the Old Testament and New Testament, that is the kernel of what is common in the worship of all the people of God. And really, if every church committed to that as core principles, all of the other things would be incidental to if we could just get those things in place. As we've uh, been thinking for a bit about the church, you know, I mentioned to you last night, this church has been in a bit of transition for the past year, searching for a senior pastor. Now, you've, uh, by way of background, I should have mentioned this, Lake served for nearly 20 years as the minister of First Presbyterian Church in Jackson, Mississippi, uh, after completing some, some work in school, and now serves as the chancellor of Reformed Theological Seminary. But so therefore, as a, as a minister and, you know, in your presbytery, you've helped churches through transition. Now you're sort of guiding seminary students as they think about entering into new seasons of ministry. Any word for us as a church as we think about, you know, going through this recent season of transition, trying to move forward? Any words of wisdom to us? One is, um, let me just encourage you in this season, to commit to becoming a family with your new pastor and pastor's wife so that, so that you, you feel like um, you are all part of one another, you all need one another, um, that you deepen your trust in one another and your personal knowledge of one another, not so that you can become a happy, insular little group but so that you can really give yourselves away to others. The more you feel like a family with one another, the more you will be able to turn outward and serve others out there and then enjoy those seasons when you're enjoying one another as, uh, as a family. And, and the, the less of a family feel that there is, the harder it is to turn outward. So I, I came to a large church and and the very size of the church was an impediment to feeling like a pat uh, like a family so we really spent a long time just saying what does it take before we really feel like a family and part of that was me getting to know the other pastors and elders and really being a part of their lives and sharing my life with them and then and then wanting that to trickle down into the life of the whole congregation and that takes time. It just, it takes a deliberate investment of time. And if I have any regrets in my ministry there, and it was a wonderful church, a wonderful experience. I'm, I'm, so, I'm, I'm often embarrassed when I'm around pastors who had hard pastorates because I think mm, the Lord gave me a really wonderful group of people to be with. And I don't have any horror stories like you have, but even there, it took a long time to have that feeling. And one of my big regrets is I didn't invest more 
in those kinds of relationships. Now, you want that to be gospel family. It's not just we like to be with one another. You really want that family relationship to be built around the gospel so that people who are really different from one another, who otherwise probably wouldn't be friends, are friends because of the gospel. You have a, you have a common commitment to the Lord Jesus Christ. You've been saved by grace through faith in him. You have a passion for his glory. That knits you together so that people who are different in age, um, different in their backgrounds, different in their interests and inclinations, in their work circles, are all pulled together and feel like family and feel like they need one another. I, that, that'd be one thing I'd say in the transition. I have two more questions, and then we're going to break, and I'm going to take some break from my questions, give you all a chance to, to ask questions. So, again, be thinking if you have a question you want to ask Ligon that would be, of, uh, be useful, helpful for the rest of us to consider together. But as we think um, about, uh, you mentioned sort of multi-generational. Mm. And one of the things that really encouraged my wife and I as we thought about coming here was the fact that this wasn't merely a church of, you know, 20-somethings or 30-somethings or, you know, no offense to cowboy churches, but we just didn't have like, <laughs> we didn't have that one issue that we all shared in yeah. common. We had, there were various diverse groups of people with diverse ages. So help, what is the, what's the benefit as you were just saying a moment ago, being sort of a multi-generational church where you've got 20-year-olds and octogenarians all in the same body? Well, I mean, one is the sharing of wisdom. Uh, you know, there, there, are, there are things, Brad, that you could have told me when I was 25, and I really would have listened. I really, really would have tried. And I could not have understood them like I understand them now. And so to, to be able to engage with a 55-year-old and a 75-year-old and a 35-year-old and a 25-year-old, there, there is a, there's a richness of experience that you gain from that kind of life experience wisdom that is just irreplaceable. It's, it, it's a wonderful thing. I remember reading an article by a guy who was very, very famous. I won't even say his name. But there was a group back in the 70s called Youth Specialties, and they were all, they were all about, you know, the latest it still fad. Exists, doesn't it, it still exists, yeah, yeah. actually. Very fatty, very, you know, down with the church. You know, we know how to do things. Church is old, you know, no good. And late in life, he writes an article about the impact of this older man in the congregation on his Son, and he said there was absolutely nothing flashy about the ministry that was going on in that church. They were just preaching the Bible and loving one another. And this older man had had a profound impact on a son of his who was very, very troubled and had hung with his son when, you know, when all the lights had gone out. And he just talked about that relationship between this older man and his son and what a blessing that had been. And if you're all the same age group, all the same background, you never get to experience that. And um, you lose something because the, the, the family of God is really, really diverse. And when you get to experience just a little bit of the church of Revelation 7 here, it's, I mean, it's, you, you know, okay, nobody could have built this but the Holy Spirit. Um, we couldn't have engineered this. And so in a diverse congregation, generationally, Background-wise, you just get to experience bits of that. And I, I want to say that has been a huge help to me along the way in the Christian life. When I was at the University of Edinburgh in Scotland my very first semester, I read some stuff that was very soul-troubling to me. And um, 
I got a lot of help from Bible-believing professors and, and others. But one of the places that I got help was from my local congregation, just being with the people. And it was a very diverse group generationally, about 400 people in that local congregation. And a lot of the times they had no idea how desperate I was in my heart and how closely I was watching them. And I can remember one night being out with a young couple. He was a lawyer for the British Foreign Office. She was a medical doctor. And I remember sitting in an Indian restaurant, just listening to them. We weren't even talking about spiritual things. But I remember looking at them and thinking, there is no way that those two people can be who they are and like they are if there is not truth to the regeneration, to the new birth by the Holy Spirit. There's no way that that they can be like that if it's not true that the Holy Spirit gives you new life. And that was, and I've never told them that. I really need to go find them and tell them that. That was one of the things that just, just being with them, the Lord used in my own life. So I want you all to experience those kinds of things, generationally and in every other way. So toward my last question, you've hinted at some of the things that you may have been told at 25, but as much as you wanted to have ears to hear them, in your own experience, you struggled to process. So in what ways now, you know, 20 years, 30 years later, in what ways has your faith changed? How do you reflect sort of now? What's it like to be a Christian now as opposed to maybe 20 years ago? This is not unlike what what I try and tell my seminary students, very frankly. Um, I would say this. If you've been blessed to be under Bible-believing teaching, at the age of 25, everything that you have been told is true at 25 will be true when you're 55, just truer. And, and it will, it will come with pain that you had no idea existed, disappointment that takes your breath away, desperation that you never ever thought you were going to experience in your life, but it will still be true. And it will be so much realer than it was when you were 25. And so part of, part of it, Brad, is just digging your fingernails in and hanging on. And um, the, the, the Jesus' truth will never let you down. It will, it will always be what you need, but it's like riding through a storm on the way um, and, and clinging to anything you can grab on the ship deck so you don't get swept aside with the waves. Um, the, the truth will still be true. It'll be truer. You'll understand it in a deeper way that you couldn't have understood it before you went through what you went through. And, again, that's why you need a family. You're not meant to go through that alone. You really need one another. And I've felt that more and more. You know, that my friendship with Mark, with Al, with CJ, that's been a huge part of my life. And I've, I think really in my late 40s and my early 50s, I started feeling that need more than I'd ever felt it before. Partly I took, I took for granted all the good relationships that the Lord had given me. And, um, and, and, and the older I've grown, the more I've realized how I needed that. And so being with people who believe the same truth, who've gone through their own trials who stick with you, who stick with Jesus, who stick with the Word, um, it it deepens your experience of that truth that you were told when you were 14, 19, 24, and it'll, it'll still be true at 55. But it's so helpful to have people along the way who can say, me too, 
or who can say, I've been there, or I know what that's like, um, that's, that's huge. That's great. Questions from you all. Just think, if you have a question you think would be helpful for us, we'd love to hear it. Just go ahead and raise your hand. And I don't know if we have roving mics, but if you're willing to speak up or I can repeat the question, happy to do that. And just go ahead and just state your name. So the question is, in light of what Ligon just said, you know, would it be beneficial perhaps to have the ABF classes more intergenerational as opposed to broken up sort of by age group? I would definitely encourage you to explore that. Now, you may not go whole hog on that, if I can use that in Fayetteville. Um, uh, you know, at, at initially, um, you, you may want to experiment with that. We've done this at First Press because we have the same thing. I think mo our Sunday schools, typically, as new couples come into the church, new Sunday school classes form. And um, and then they tend to grow up living life together over the decades. Now, that's wonderful because you have people that are in the same life stages together from no kids to kids to crumb crunchers to high school students to college students to empty nesters to grandparents. And there's something beautiful about that. And you, you want to have spaces in your life as a church together where you can benefit from that. But we also have classes that are intergenerational. And, you know, we, we let people, you know, we're not going to force people into where they have to, to go and, and belong. But those intergenerational classes have been incredibly successful. And I've found that the, um, that there are some really neat bonds between teenagers and 75 year olds that have developed, um, in really good, healthy, ways that have been mutually enriching. So that's, that is something well worth exploring as the leadership decides, you know, what you're doing going forward. Yeah. Great question. Other questions? Right here. Howard? <laughs> yes. Good. Yeah, yeah, that's good. So Howard's asking how I should do my job. <laughs> um, I, I was actually, I was, I was telling Brad last night, I, when, when I went to First Presbyterian Church in Jackson, had about 3,000 members. I was 35 years old when I became the pastor. I had never been the, the senior pastor of any church. I'd been an assistant pastor. I'd been an interim pastor. Their profile for their new pastor was he needed to be at least 45 years old, married with children, pastoring a church of at least a thousand for 10 years. I fit none of the, none of the parameters for the pulpit committee and ended up there. So on the first night when I'm meeting with my elders and I had 70 elders, I'm a 35 year old sitting in a room full of 70 elders. Not just any men. Yeah, the, these are the people that run the state of Mississippi. And I'm thinking, what in the world am I going to say to these people? And so I said, 
okay, I don't have much to offer you, but two things. One, I am, my dad was an elder, so I really can look at things from the standpoint of lay leadership in the church. I, I really understand how, how lay leaders think about preachers, uh, how they think about life and ministry in the local church. I will be sympathetic to your perspective on things. The, number two, I will work hard. Uh, my mother's motto was, you may be smarter than me, but I will outwork you. And uh, so I said, you will not have a lazy pastor. I will work hard. And I said, brothers, apart from that, I'm not sure I have anything else to offer you. <laughs> and so um, now the other thing I did have going for me is I, I like, I really like older people. My, my mother told me I was born as a little old man. And um, so, you know, my parents were from the greatest generation. They were Depression and World War II era. I just understood how those people thought. I thought like they thought. I felt like I was more part of their generation than my generation. So I never had problems connecting um, with with older folks in the congregation. I really enjoyed them. In fact, many of Anne and my friends came from that uh, generation in the church. And they were really really patient with me as a young man. Um, you know, I made a lot of mistakes, a lot of mistakes, and my people were so forbearing with me. And, um, you know, I look back now and I, I shake my head at the things that I did, and my people just hung in there with me. Uh, they, they knew that I loved Jesus. They knew that I would preach the gospel. They knew that I would bring the word of God to them week by week. And they just sat back and said, we'll grow up. Now, I could, no, I kid you not. They, they, that was their attitude. Now, I had, I, I had some good hard words of counsel given to me along the way, frankly, that were hard to listen to then. But then 10 years later, I looked back at him and I thought, you know what? Every word of what he said was right. You know, even if I wasn't able to receive it then. So, again, that was part of them being a family to me. They really, they said, okay, we've got a 35-year-old. We're going we're gonna to wait till he grows up. And uh, you've got a lot more mature man than I was uh, coming in to serve you. So, again, I would say if, if you feel like, well, I'm not sure I can relate to Brad generationally, give him a chance. You might find out that he becomes your best friend. You know, you may be 73 and you may think, that's my best friend. So, you know, don't think that young means that you can't relate to folks of all ages because uh, it doesn't. Now, I was blessed with some older guys on my staff that already had great relationships with um, with folks in the church that were older than me. But um, but I liked I, I liked relating. Those were my people. So, you know, I just um, I, I enjoyed that. So I'd, I'd say be be patient. Um, and I'm, I'm absolutely sure that Brad and the elders want to minister to the entirety of the congregation. There's not some part of the congregation that they're going to privilege over another. They want everybody flourishing in Christ. They want everybody equipped to serve. They want everybody living for the glory of God and reaching out with the gospel. They're going to pour all that they have into everybody that will receive it. Um, and just help them do that. Be patient. Um, it's, you know, it's with, with a congregation your size, um, it, it will take Brad a while to really get to know you. And just give him time to do that. You know, he'll, he'll want to do that. Um, yeah. 
Great. Other questions for Liggs? Go ahead, raise your hand. If you've got a question, stand up, state your name. That'd be great. That'll help me continue to get to know you. Right back here. Yeah. It's really good. So the question is how to help some of the, the members who are chronologically mature help the less chronologically mature yeah. among us. It's hilarious. <laughs> that that if, if you heard if you heard the Al Mohler story when when Al Mohler went to Southern Seminary, he was thirty three years old, and one of the reporters, one of the hostile reporters from the Louisville Courier Journal, said, "Doctor Mohler, you're only thirty three years old. What do you plan to do about that?" <laughs> and Al said, "I plan to age." <laughs> <laughs> Which is the only appropriate answer to as stupid a question as that. But uh, that's a really good question. So uh, what I encouraged my older members to do was to deliberately look for relationships with younger members of the congregation that they could pour their lives into. And, and I can tell you there were a series of, of older ladies in my congregation that ministered to my wife in ways that I will never, ever be able to repay them for. I, I, was, I told Brad and Aaron last night, my, my youngest child, Jennings, had a, um, a pediatric immune deficiency problem, which, meant that, which caused him to catch any respiratory infection within 500 yards upwind. And um, we could not put him in the nursery. We couldn't bring him to church for seven years. And my, my wife is the most gregarious people person person that I've ever met in my life. And so that was, that was like being sent to Siberia for her. And older women in the congregation just took her under their wing and um, enabled her to be able to go to the grocery store and shop and come to church and and go to church, and they would they you know they would come in with their gloves and everything, and and look after Jennings, um, and they ministered to her. Uh, very, they weren't of her generation. They, you know, th th there were all sorts of differences between them, but they became really, really special and close friends to her. So she would name those ladies who are now in their eighties. If you made her name, who are the who are my closest friends at First Presbyterian Church? They, you know, she's in she's in her fifties. They're in her eighties. They'd be in the list of her closest friends. So if you're if you're part of that older generation, you have wisdom that cannot be manufactured except by living life, and you need to be deliberate about sharing that with the rest. Of, so be, you know, it's a way that you can pour into the next generation. So I I would just encourage older members of the congregation to be deliberate about that. Great. Good questions. Other questions? Kevin, did you have a question? So Kevin's question has to do with the role of the church and sort of policies of government, the judicial... You know, we've got, we've got the ordinance vote on September the 8th, things of that. We talked about that last night, yeah. so... This is, interestingly, tomorrow morning I'll be flying to Louisville, Kentucky, to Southern Seminary, and all of my leadership team will be meeting with all of Al Mohler's leadership team, and one of the two main topics of discussion will be what do we need to do as a seminary 
in light of these legal and cultural changes that we're facing. So we're all in the same boat. I think I probably have the target on my back even before you do because I think local churches will be able to retain certain rights longer than other kinds of Christian institutions, high schools, colleges, seminaries, hospitals, et cetera, will be more vulnerable than local churches because of the First Amendment. Thank the Lord for the First Amendment. I think the First Amendment will protect us for a while, but this is coming, and it's a reality that we all need to be prepared for. So um, for me, and and I'll get right to the local church because that's what you're asking, I I have to look at things like licensure. I'm, I'm definitely in danger of having my students, for instance, that might be going into counseling losing the capacity to be licensed. I'm in danger of losing accreditation. Um, I'm, I'm certainly in danger of losing property tax exemption and eventually maybe tax deductible. I mean, I think in that order are the things that I could lose. Now, I've already told my, my board we are committed. We will lose anything we have to lose in order to stay faithful to the Word of God. There is nothing we won't lose. If I have to give up accreditation, fine. If I have to give up property tax exemption, fine. If I have to give up uh, licensure and 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 these, th- fine. We'll give it all. Christians up. have been doing that for two thousand. We've years. been doing it for two thousand years. If it's our turn, it's our turn. So and and look, Baptists have always understood this. You know, so that's the the beauty. You've you've had a historical tradition that grew up in this situation. So for four hundred years, Baptists have had to be had had to be dealing with these kinds of things. So at the local church level, I think one thing that you want to do is you want to determine right now that taking a stand for the Bible's teaching on morality and these other issues will cost you in the culture. And people will misunderstand you and misrepresent you. So I I think you need to be ready to just pay the price at that level. I would also say as you stand firm, that you want to have an attitude as you face out into a world that now is looking down on Christian morality. You know, it's really interesting. In the 19th century, liberals said, well, what's not persuasive about Christianity is its supernaturalism, its miracles, the claims about the resurrection, about the atonement of Christ. That's not persuasive. But Christian ethics, that's persuasive. We're going to get rid of all the miraculous. We're going to get rid of the atonement. We're going to hang on to ethics and the Sermon on the Mount, and that will win the day. Well, that's theological liberalism. And everywhere it has been embraced, the church has died. Um, today, what people are saying is... Christian morality is sub-ethical. In other words, secularists view their own morality as superior to Christian morality. So Christian morality is being rejected by the culture. In that context, we have to stand with Jesus and say, you know, whenever the culture says it's either me or Jesus, I know where I'm standing on that. I'm, I'm with Jesus. And Jesus was, did, spoke to these issues. He was not silent on these issues. So we've got to stand with Jesus. At the same time, I think our posture has to be to the world, you can't hate me enough to stop me from loving you. So you just hate me as much as you want. I still love you, and I want you to be in heaven forever with Jesus. And I think that dual posture, firm backbone, we're not bending an inch on what the Bible says. A posture of absolute self-giving and love. We want your eternal well-being And no matter how much you hate us, we will love you. I think that will befuddle the world. 
And, and that's all we need to do. Just be faithful to the word, love sinners, and recognize that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation, whether they think it is or not. It still is. And so we just keep believing that and keep reaching out in love and standing firm on the Scripture. Essentially, that's what we've all got to do. Now, as elders, you're going to have to think through all sorts of policies. So, for instance, at our church, we've had to close the loopholes on who's allowed to be married in the church in order to protect the church from discrimination um, accusations and things of that nature. So there are going to be all sorts of policies that you have to think through. My guess is you've already got either in your church covenants or in your bylaws the kind of language that you need to protect you on these things. You're just going to have to look consistently through your church policies and make sure that those things are played out in such a way to protect you. Because if you don't apply it consistently... You've got to be consistent. Yeah, then you're up for the discrimination claim. So when it gets to particular like legislation... Any wisdom for how we think about that? So I appreciated your words that when we speak to the community, we shouldn't sort of rant and blast sort of the, the self-righteousness because right. that's going to send a message that might be counter to the gospel. Right. As much as we think whatever it could be could be harmful right. to their long-term spiritual flourishing, right. let alone just their human flourishing. But as we think about particular legislation, should, should we be happy as leaders to say, yes, you must vote X, you should consider this candidate? Or would you say, actually, be... Be careful in how you speak to particular legislation. Well, I mean, Brad, in God's kindness, because of where you've been and because of the issues that you've already had to navigate pastorally for a number of years in Washington, D.C., I think you are uniquely equipped to help this congregation because, very frankly, the D.C. Council is it makes the Fayetteville Council look like the Tea Party. Okay? I mean, honestly. And you've had a kind of diversity at Capitol Hill Baptist Church, even politically, that very few churches have. And Capitol Hill, I think, Baptist Church, knew how to navigate these issues without selling out on Christian principles and without getting too overly involved in the the political side of things. And it's, it's always a judgment call. You know, it is always a judgment call. And there have been things that you all have decided, we're just not going to speak about that. And then there have been other things where you've decided, we got to speak about that. So as Christians, you always want to vote your conscience. You always want to vote. Your, your conscience needs to be captive of the Word of God. And I know your pastor is going to encourage you to do that. There will be times where he feels like he needs to be a little more specific and a little more directive. And there will be other times when he feels like, I, I can trust you to just... Vote your conscience according to the word of God on those things. But as, as Christians, I think it's important for us to recognize that our capacity to reach out to the community with a gospel is ultimately not going to be tied to how they vote one way or the other. You know, there is no question that the kind of marginalization that Christians experienced before Constantine, far more extreme than anything that we are likely to experience in our lifetime. I expect all of us in this room for the rest of our lives to experience increasing legal, social, cultural, and especially financial marginalization. But it will, I don't think we in this room will ever see it to the extent that Christians under the Roman Empire experienced it prior to Constantine. And of course, the gospel exploded in that context. Why? Because Christians believed the gospel, they were faithful to Jesus. And so um, just 
it's, it is important for us to be involved. It's important for us to vote. It's important for there to be important, good voices speaking sanity and rationality and not throwing bombs in every direction, but having a sane voice of moral clarity. Voices like Russ Moore and Al and others, it's so important to have that. But whether those voices are listened to or not, whether we win the votes or not, whether the culture becomes increasingly uh, opposed to us or not, will not ultimately determine the fruitfulness of our ministry and uh, the faith, you know, the, 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 the fruit of our, of our faithfulness. Are you familiar with Robert Benet's book, Good and Bad Ways to Think About Religion? He was a UVA prof, maybe. I, I think I, I think I know it. I'm, I'm not sure I've read it. Yeah, it's a thin book. We used it um, when I was serving in the staff at CHPC often because it's it's written at a level that anyone sort of any lay, you don't need to be a vocational elder. You don't need to be trained in sort of Hebrew and Greek to get it. It's it's sort of plain, sane, common sense yeah. as the Bible pertains to thinking about religion, and it's just called I think good and bad ways to think about religion. Robert Bene, B E N N E. It's a useful book. I brought some free copies, and at some point, I'll distribute them to you. Listen, it's uh, it's ten twelve. I want to I want us to uh, to end here, um, and uh, I want to pray uh, and thank God for our time with Ligon. Um, let's just express a word of thanks to him now. So. <laughs> Let me pray, and then we'll go ahead and get started with the, the main service in a few minutes. Father, we're thankful for the fellowship we have in Christ. Uh, we're thankful for the brother, who, uh, our brother Ligon, who's come and who's come to bless us with the word and who's just, you've used experiences in his life to enrich our own lives this morning. And we know that's how the Christian life works, whether or not it was Ligon sitting next to me or whether or not it was another brother. It could have been one of the brothers and sisters in this room. But you use such experiences to be a blessing to others. So we pray that we would be that kind of family that would encourage one another that we've talked about and that we would have the confidence in the gospel such that we could weather any storm that may come our way because we're united to Christ, we're arm in arm with one another, and we're pursuing heaven together. Give us that joy, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.